He's a rehab doctor from Chicago. She's an emergency medicine doctor from the Twin Cities. Together, we're examining the health equity emergency. Inviting voices for change without the cue cards. I'm Dr. Carrie Haley. I'm Dr. Steven Jackson. And And this this is is Off Off the the Charts. Charts. Today, as I often say, you are in for a treat, and we have the distinct honor and pleasure to be joined by Diane Halsey, president and CEO of the Family Partnership, as well as the host of the Early Risers podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I think we're going to be talking a lot about the kids I love the kids. <laughs> the youngins. Uh, yes. the, the youngins. The babies. You know, the, the late, great Whitney Houston said, I believe the children are our future. And uh, so I really appreciate, number one, your commitment to early childhood development and education. And uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit more about that and even more specifically about the cultural identity and concepts of race in early childhood development. So tell us a little about, maybe a little bit about you first before we dive in. Yes. Who was Diane Sure. So I, as you mentioned, I am president and CEO of the Family Partnership, which is a nonprofit in Minneapolis. And we focus on services um, that help to remove barriers for families. And so we have two sites and we do early childhood, behavioral health and some other community-based programming. But I have been in the field of early childhood slash human services for about 30 years. I'm born and raised in Minnesota, and I've raised my family here too. Yep. Where did your passion come from? I mean, because obviously children are special. Mm. Children have Mm -hmm. specific Mm -hmm. needs. And, you know, the things around our world affect adults differently than they affect children. So it seems to be, you know, a, a particular focus that has to be placed on children when you're when you're in the field of childhood development and education. So yeah. where where's your passion? Where does where does it stem from? Yeah, that's a good question. And I've I've told this story many times. So if you hear it, forgive me. But I so I've <laughs> always <laughs> I've always um wanted to work in the community. So that was always from day one uh, a passion of mine. But early, very, very early on in my career, in fact I was still in graduate school. And I had a job, a part-time job at a community center in Minneapolis. And I distinctly remember overhearing conversations. I worked with young people and overhearing conversations of young teenage girls, 13 and 14, talking about at which age they were going to have their baby. Like, it was it going to be that year or next year? And then young men talking about which year they were going to go to prison. Like, was it going to be this year or next really? year? Because that was the only, like, that's what they had seen in their community. And that was the only, like, options that they had seen. And it really stuck with me. And it occurred to me, um, and that kind of drove me towards early childhood because I realized that a lot had happened to these young people um, by the time that they were making statements like that. And that I wanted to work in the area where right at the beginning, so that by the time they got that age, that they had more options and uh, could, you know, the same thing we want for our children that 
they could do whatever they wanted to do in life. Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked some, you know, I've been involved in some conversations about like the pipeline projects and like people wanting to expose youth to different careers and different options. Mm. And then a lot of the focus is on like high school students or early college students. So, and, but people are talking about how it's that's that's wrong. That's the we're, that is too late a lot of the time to kind of start talking to youth about that. So, how do you approach talking to a middle schooler or younger, or an elementary student or a pre-K student about different options in their life other than what they might experience day to day? Well, one of the things I love about working in the field of early childhood is that there's so much hope. So in young children, they're like, you know, we, we like to say in early childhood that 80% of brains are developed by the time you're five years old. And so there's a lot happening <laughs> in those first few yeah. years. There's a lot happening in our brains. There's a lot of development happening. So um, so that is like just like an, an excellent time to really be able to work with children. And so like if they're already showing delays, for instance, there's a lot you can do to really catch children up so that they're ready for kindergarten. And so um, that's one of the things I love about early childhood is there's just so much that you can really tangibly do to really catch children up and to get them ready so that they can learn and and be ready to do whatever they want to do. Yeah. You know, we obviously talk about the health equity emergency, that's kind of like the subtitle of this podcast. Mm-hmm. And the essence of what you're saying and essence of what you guys are doing is equity. You know, you're you're positioning uh, our kids who might be disadvantaged or they might come from a background that puts them, puts them in the red, so to speak, when it comes to what they have access to. Right. And you're helping to bridge the gap so that the playing field is more level and they have more of a chance to be successful what are what are some of the challenges that you know that you face? And I, I would imagine there would be many because uh, you know. Yeah, it's- well, especially now, I'm still recovering from the pandemic and and all that that has done to development of children of all ages. But mm-hmm. I would say that one of the biggest challenges, for instance, right now in the classroom, is that there is an increased number of children that are showing up. You know, with delayed social skills or not, you know, not not as many social mm-hmm. skills as they were before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so that so they so there's a lot of work now that's being done around how do we develop executive functioning skills? That's what they call it, you know, but basically these are the skills that help you to um, calm yourself mm-hmm. and regulate your emotions follow directions, you know, those kind of skills like that, that are really uh, difficult, you know, right now when you're not in community with other people to Mm -hmm. develop. And so that's, you know, that's kind of across the board. We're seeing a lot more of that right now in the classroom. That's really interesting. And, you know, maybe (laughs) not just even involving COVID, but in your years of experience with that, Mm -hmm. have you seen trends or changes from what you know, the pre-K yeah. youth were 20 years ago compared to where we are now, excluding even having had the pandemic. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Good even before the pandemic, I would say I would say that there was an uptick in the in the issues around executive functioning and also language. 
And so that's another big one um, and, and, and another area where a lot of equity issues emerge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're in a family that talks a lot or you get a lot of language, that's beneficial because that la- early language development is going to help you with literacy. And as we all know, you know, literacy basically helps you do learn everything else. So literacy is hmm. really important. Yeah. With huh. the With the introduction of the smartphone hmm. um so which that was way before the pandemic we're already seeing a bit of a decrease in the amount of words that all children are being exposed to yeah now there's already a, a, an <laughs> equity issue between a low income and middle or higher income children and how many words that they receive but that seems to be closing on the lower end not like it's getting better but it's getting worse for like mm-hmm. uh, upper upper income uh, families because of, you know, when the smartphone emerged, there's less, there's been less interaction Mm -hmm. with babies. Um, And so they're not getting as much of the language as, you know, as well. You're bringing up a lot of interesting points. And in my mind, while you're talking, I'm thinking, well, what direction should we go? Mm Because we can go in a lot of directions. (laughs) Uh, I want to send a shout out quickly to uh, Jason Maxwell. He's one of the uh, directors of in pediatrics here at Health Partners. Uh, we had him on really early in our podcast. We're just a fledgling podcast. Uh, <laughs> but he linked being literate by a certain age, or if you're not literate by a certain age, it's a like a predictor of mm-hmm. who's going to be incarcerated. Yeah, and it gets third grade. Yeah, yeah and that, mm-hmm. that really stuck with me when yeah. you said that. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, something else that you said, um, you know, you, you talked about community and how important it is for people to, learn within that community, you know, having community, you know, as we, as we think about, uh, you know, uh, the George Floyd festival that's coming up, mm-hmm. uh, this, this weekend. And one of the key words was Ubuntu, I think I said, mm-hmm. or Ubuntu, which means I am because we are. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that while you're talking, uh, because it's going to be that community, you know, and us, you know, rallying around one another to make sure that if one falls, we all fall. So let's let's rally around and, and pick each other yeah. up. That's going to be important. So when I think about childhood development, you know, I have my own kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think about some of the challenges that we had slash have. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I know, you know, we're going, you know, we have, and, you know, I don't want to make this about me, but we have four teenagers you know, right now uh, from 19 down to 15. (laughs) And, you know, this generation, they were born with uh, a Facebook account and a phone Mm -hmm. when they were born. You know, can you speak specifically about that challenge and the current generation? Because, I mean, again, the studies show, you know, with the smartphone, you know, some of the, you know, the social skills and some of these other things are kind of going in the wrong direction. But mm-hmm. now it's like it's the quote unquote way of the world. This, mm-hmm. this is what, mm-hmm. what happens. Everybody gets a phone by four years old and then a yeah. tablet. And tell me about those <laughs> challenges in that particular space. So, you know, I'm certainly not an expert in this area, but I but I can talk about what I have, I'm seeing in the field sure. of early childhood. And I think so. So, you know, that. <laughs> We're working with children, you know, oftentimes five, six years and, and younger. So they have no concept of a world without 
right. a touch screen. Yes. And, you know, you know, it's everybody having it's a phone in their hand. They don't that's this is their world. They mm-hmm. don't know anything else. Wow. Um, and so part of what's happening in the field is that a lot of our teachers, you know, like if we have some long term teachers or people that have been in the field educating there's a real gap in between yeah. what they the technological knowledge that they might have and the knowledge that these very young children have and what they're expecting. So that is one of the issues that, you know, that we're we're dealing with. The other issue is th- there was a lot of talk about no screen t- screen time, yep. you know, especially mm-hmm. before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But then when the pandemic happened, then all of a sudden everybody needed a screen to <laughs> To do anything. That, that was survival. It was survival. <laughs> you know, you have too. to have a screen mm-hmm. to to be able to go to school now and to be able to do this. And even a lot of early childhood programs were trying desperately, you know, especially during those early months to figure out how they could do things remotely. So um, so so that these young children also are now very familiar with communicating to people on the screen. Mm-hmm. So this is this is their life. This is what mm-hmm. they know. They don't know anything else. And so I think that I think the outlook around that has shifted, maybe out of necessity, maybe just because people have realized this is the world we live in. But there's a lot of um, conversations now around tools. How can we develop mm-hmm. early childhood tools, okay. assessments that do use the screen? Because this is what, you know, <laughs> this is the, the, the this, platform, this the is landscape. A, this is the landscape <laughs> that we are that we are living mm-hmm. in. And so I don't know where that all is going to end up, but it is, you know, the reality that our young children are in, you know, their their worlds are um, revolve around all this technology now and they don't know a world without it. And they don't know how to do without it. They don't know how to do without. <laughs> that is true. They don't. Yeah, they don't. Wow. I just think about like, I have a six year old. So he, he really honestly doesn't still understand when you just simply call someone why he can't see them as well, because he's used to FaceTime. Yes. Rather than just even just a phone call. Like if we call my parents, he's like, why can't I see grandma? I can hear her, but why can't like, where's the face? Where's the face? I don't understand it. So Mm -hmm. just thinking about how we probably do need to adapt and how we deliver education and do these, you know, testings yeah. and everything. And do we need to change our expectations or what do you think will be coming in the next five years, especially as these pandemic babies mm-hmm. get older hmm. and mm-hmm. are going into school, entering the school years? Yeah, I think we're I, th- I think we are at that place where we just have to adapt. And, and there are a lot of people that are working on things like that. How do we, how do we use now technology? Um, and I think our, our, oh, well, I hope, this is my hope now that our school systems will really begin to not just adapt, but to maybe even re, um, regenerate into a way that is more beneficial to a broader number of people um, and be able to do it in a way that people you know, learn better. Everybody learns differently. And I, you know, I have children too, and my children were you know, teenagers when the pandemic started okay. as well. And so they have a totally different viewpoint on school attendance than I do. 
because they were just gone and they they did they basically went to school from their bed for like two years so they yes. they, oh, they they're like i can still get good grades and not go into the bill i mean it's just a totally different view of how i how i grew up you just went to school well you know these children now they that is not their experience that has not been their reality and so they're going to expect something different yeah and I, and i think we have to like you say we have to be creative saying no screen time obviously that that would not work uh so how can we utilize what we have and sort of be you know current with what's happening you know with the technological uh advancements that are that are occurring but still be effective because you know the kids still need to be reached yes Mm -hmm. Um, yes you know we talked earlier you know a little bit about equity and we talked about uh, cultural identity. How do you talk to a young person about cultural identity and even race and racism for that matter? Well, first of all, it's good to uh, recognize that children are, as I mentioned before, there's so much learning and is happening in those first few years, and which includes their cultural identity. Every mm. child is developing a cultural identity. And so, so that's just happening. I think the important thing is to be aware of it that so that you can help to mold that cultural identity into a positive one. And so for, for white children, what's important is to, to, to be able to help them develop a cultural identity to be proud of who they are, but not in a way that downplays somebody else's identity so that they're proud of who they are, but it doesn't mean that they're any better or any worse than anyone else. And for children of color, especially in a place like Minnesota, it's really important to develop um, cultural identities so where people can be not just proud of who they are, but to also be prepared for when people might say things against them Mm. that they don't internalize it. Mm-hmm. So they don't begin to believe some of those negative stereotypes that are out there um, so that they have the language and the wherewithal to combat um, whatever negativity they may encounter. I think we try to talk about uncomfortable things here on our podcast, yeah. and, as well as yours. <laughs> um, I think that one of the things that I felt is sometimes a challenge is that a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking about race themselves. Yes. Um, even adult to adult. Oh, yeah. Let alone to a four-year-old or a yes. three-year-old. So what kind of words of wisdom do you have for trying to engage in the conversation, especially for people who are very uncomfortable talking about it, even for themselves as an adult? Yeah. Yeah, we are very, we are not taught how to talk about race. And so we are, a lot of times people are uncomfortable about it. But here's the good news. These are conversations that you can prepare yourself for. You don't have to be caught off guard. There's so much literature out there, uh, videos, um, you know, things that you can do. And so what I really recommend is um, there is a person that I interviewed on my uh, podcast, Dr. Rosemary Allen, and she talks about having a treasure trove of responses. So you can develop these responses. You can develop how you um, are going to talk about 
about it before you have the conversation so that you're ready and you don't have to get caught off guard. The other thing I would say, and this is important about talking to children, um, you know, we're not taught how to do this. And so a lot of times, especially when you first do it, you might be uncomfortable. But the most important thing is to have the conversation and to not shut the conversation down. Mm-hmm. Because when you shut the conversation down, the child or children get the message, I can't talk about this. And so then they'll stop asking. Now, it doesn't mean that they stop having questions or they mm-hmm. stop developing. That's good. Um, but mm-hmm. they will stop ask. They, they will stop talking about mm-hmm. it. And so as long as you keep talking about it, it's always OK. If you a child asks a question, you say, oh, you know, I don't really know right now. Maybe I'll find out and we'll talk about it again later. You know, you can always just make sure that they know it's OK for you to ask these questions. It's OK for us to talk about that, because at whatever age that conversation is, you're opening up the conversation for a lifetime. So your conversation will change over the years as children develop, but it's open and you can have it. And and because you want your child when they get to be 13, 14, 15, to be able to come to you if they have these questions mm-hmm. and Absolutely. not just find something out on YouTube, you know, because that's going to be their yes. teacher. If they can't talk about it with you, they're going to get information somewhere. It just won't be from, you know, you as the parent or caregiver. Yeah. And I think as as parents and as, again, community members, I think it's important for us to sort of enlarge the territory of our kids, so to speak. Going back to what you said earlier, you stated that a lot of the young ladies, they talked about when they're going to you know, conceive. And the young men right. talked about when they're going to mm-hmm. enter the prison system. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, you hear the, the term, you can't be what you don't see or you can't be mm-hmm. what you can't see. And I think yeah. we have to continue to expose young people to the possibilities because it might be, you know, that one mentor or that one class or that one opportunity, that one summer program that sparks something on the inside of them, that wakes up that that developing mm. seed that develops into a fruit of success, whatever that is for them, as opposed to, well, this is what I'm going to be. I might as well not try. Mm. You know, uh, yeah. that, that hits me hard because, yeah. you know, I see uh, my wife and I, we call it like the, the fallacy of low expectation because if a kid gets a C, yeah, you, you encourage them because it wasn't an F, but, you know, it shouldn't be a, well, good job. Good job. Right. <laughs> That's a great job. Because then it's like, OK, I've done my part. Right. And it's almost like what I what I've and I'm, I'm speaking personally. I'm not quoting stats here mm-hmm. uh, for our listeners, but I've seen personally how, you know, some people of color uh, talk about my kids. It's almost like there's a there's a lower expectation. Yes. And so thankfully, they have two involved parents mm-hmm. that have raised the bar and continue to raise the bar for them so they can achieve and they can reach. But it's almost like, a, oh, good job with your C or your your, your C minus. You did better this year. Mm. And it's like, no, we have to always present just what the potential is. Yes. You know, you know, they always say reach for the stars and let's see where you land. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I really appreciate uh just, you know, you guys really just putting forth, you know, not only the effort, but just the heart mm. behind this. You know, again, our children are special and it it's a call. It's not yeah. just yeah. it's not just a desire. It's a call yeah. to to uh to really help young people, you know. So it is. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm going to just kind of 
segue into a little bit, uh, wanting to hear a little bit more about your podcast, since we are all fellow podcast hosts. Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about how your podcast was born and the ideas behind it and what you're, where you're at, where you want to go, that sort of thing. Let yeah. me get my notepad real quick. Yeah, we'll take some notes and maybe steal something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I think um, kind of similarly to how your podcast started, I was really... I was deeply affected by the murder of George Floyd in a way, not just personally, but also professionally. And so I really did some deep thinking about the early childhood field and how we um, were kind of, you know, what our responsibilities lie mm-hmm. in that kind of in that conversation, as well as what are our opportunities. You know, we're working with children when they're very young, so we have tremendous opportunity around this. And so through my work, my many years of work, it occurred to me that adults, as we have already discussed, really don't know how to have conversations around race and racism. And so how can we solve something if we can't even talk about it? So I started to think about the fact that we, well, we're working with young children. We can act, we, this is something we can actually teach. You know, we can teach children how to have these conversations. And so what I knew people needed was like not an intellectual conversation. They need to know the words. Like, what do I exactly say mm-hmm. <laughs> in this particular situation? And so that's kind of how the podcast was born to, to be to be able to be a resource for people to say, okay, this is what I can actually say in this situation to young children. You know, it's so we we were in the middle of our fourth season. It's going very well. And so I don't know. I'm not exactly sure where we'll go. This season is all about parents. So we've been talking to several parents around the state of Minnesota about their wow. journeys. We're talking to their children about race and racism. So, yeah. So we'll see where it goes. Awesome. <laughs> That's amazing. Speak to that person or group of people that don't feel like this this body of work is important or, or should be prioritized. Well, what I would say to that is that we have seen repeatedly how racism is actually not, it, it, it's actually in many situations a life or death situation. Hmm. And um, not being able to recognize race or racism, not being able to talk about it can, you know, can be fatal to some people. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is real. It's it's not just a nice thing to do. It's imperative, you know, that we, you know, teach children how to have that have these conversations. And my dream is that um, children will grow up, that our young children will grow up and one day be able to have the conversation that solves the issue, that dismantles racism, because then mm-hmm. now they can talk about it. So that's my dream. I like that dream. I love that, <laughs> I, I like, I, I love that dream. That's a fabulous dream. And we don't, neither neither you nor Steve and I need to do podcasts anymore. Yeah, exactly. If, if exactly. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I think this conversation, I honestly, I feel like we could go on for. A lot longer than what we have right now, but I want to thank you for coming, sharing all of your stories and wisdom here today. Um, I think that both children and adults alike can learn a lot from you and that I'm really hopeful that people that, you know, you continue succeeding in in all of your endeavors. Thank you. Yeah. And and listen, thank you for being a voice for our kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have a special place in my heart. I don't, I'll say this as we close. I don't think I was called (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, I, I, I used to tell my wife when I was uh, looking into residency, I told her I had enough pediatrics at home, <laughs> so I don't need to go into peds. That's but, funny. But honestly, in all seriousness, thank you for just being a voice for those that need to have a voice and uh, for helping shape our future, uh, which hopefully is a bright one. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Off the Charts is a production of Health Partners and Park Nicolay. It is recorded by Jimmy Bellamy with creative by Peggy Arnson, Tina Long, Tim Myers, and Jeff Jondahl. Production services provided by Matriarch Digital Media. Our theme music is by Ryan Eich.